Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And waiting for my man to be a two-time father, I'm I'm Nick Sperry. That's right, two-time father. Folks, if you're listening to this right now, and by the way, Nick Sperry has his eyes closed because, you know, it's an audio podcast uh, platform that you're listening to us on. So he does this weird thing. I wanted to bring this over here before we even get into the episode. <laughs> he does this weird thing. He closes his eyes and he's talking. And I'm, I, I know he learned that from somewhere. And I'm asking him, where'd you, where are you getting that from? Why are you closing your eyes? Are you in a booth right now? You're about to sing the national anthem. Like, what's you recording an album? What is going on? It's a very, why do you close your eyes? I'm not, it's funny. I'm not, maybe two things. One, it might be, um, you know, in the past, sometimes if I'm trying to like listen carefully to a conversation, like I close my eyes because uh, I'll sometimes have a tendency for my eyes to be drawn to like a person's nonverbal expression. Like that's something like in coaching you do all the time. You're like talking to someone you're sort of seeing like, are they paying attention? What's going on emotionally? What's their read? When I shut my eyes, sometimes I'm just just listening and just responding. Um, you know, full disclosure, we do a lot of video. You know, Mike puts out a ton of like visual content to you know, help promote the show and really give everyone a glimpse into the work that we do. Honestly, the video part to me is it's important for the sake of promotion. But for me, I'm an audio primary person. So oftentimes, you know, even if I'm listening to a show, it's like eyes closed for me. Sometimes even if I'm, I've had coaching conversations where I'm talking to someone on the phone and my eyes are closed the whole time. And occasionally I open my eyes and just jot a note, but I'm just sort of dialed into, you know, what someone says. Um, I don't recall when I was in Connecticut school broadcasting, doing many promos or audio work and stuff with my eyes yeah. closed. I won't be shocked if I did. Actually, I didn't because I had to also operate boards. So you'd have to play music. You know, basically you learn how to be a DJ essentially, right. but you have a you have music, listen for the post, you know, 
make sure you shut up and let the lyrics go. By the way, pet peeve, anyone, if you ever are listening to music and you're like in a meeting or whatever, and you talk when the lyrics go on, someone like me is going to say you hit the post. And that's what we're, and what we mean there is when the lyrics kick in, when the singing starts, the rapping begins, you shut up. Your right. intro is at 30 seconds, the beginning for when just music is being played. Talk over someone speaking or rapping. And that's just that's just an audio crime for me. So yeah. Nick sharing some secret insights there. If you happen, <laughs> if you happen, anybody who's listening, if you happen to host a radio slot coming up on one of these weekend shifts of your radio station, right? And you're I know a guy play, used to do it with that fan, man. Yeah. Don't do that. That's and not right. And you're about to play a song, you know, Adele's new song, right? And before she before she sings, the first 10 seconds when you hear the beat is when you can talk. Nick's saying to shut up right after that. But listen. Um, as we get into our episode, Nick mentioned it at the top. I, if you're listening to this right now, I have the birth of my second child. Daniela has been brought into this world. So I am on paternity leave right now as we're recording this. But what we're doing is we wanted to leave you guys with some great content. We recently had Dr. Stephen Curtin on, who's a sociology professor at UNC Greensboro. He's written a bunch of fantastic books. And he's also written a bunch of research papers. And one of the things that he's been doing recently has been working with former uh, Pro Bowl cornerback James Hasty of the, of the Chiefs and the Jets. And they've been working with the National Football League on hiring practices, right? Getting more candidates a foot in the door beyond what the Rooney rule is doing. And he created this algorithmic tool called the CPAS tool. And they started this consulting firm, him and James Hasty called NNJ. That helps, you know, bring uh, the hiring disparities that are happening, the racial biases that people have, right, uh, towards hiring a candidate. Um, it eliminates all that because it assigns you a score based upon the entirety of your resume, your profile, whatever, so that people start to see, they don't see the color. They don't see the individual. They just see a score. It's attributed to that person. Um, but the reason we had him on the program was, Sociology and the, stu the study of sociology and, and what is sociology, the social life, social changes, the causes and consequences of human behavior. A lot of that is at a societal level displaying in front of us, right? The way people are reacting to vaccine mandates that have been around for hundreds of years since 1903 with smallpox and what the Supreme Court ruled on back then. Um, you know, you see certain things playing out in critical race theory. Right. And, and the way the emotions are are, are starting to uh, channel between different people at school boards. And it's fake outrage because it's not taught at a K to 12 setting. It's at a collegiate setting, uh, you know, and, and it's really in the law. You know, it's taught as as race applies to law practicing. So uh, anyway, there's a bunch there. And we wanted to have Dr. Kirtan on because I had him on my other show. Check the stats, which is available on the analyst.com to talk about all this work that he's doing with the NFL. And we brought him over here because the study of sociology um, just kind of blew, blew me away. And some of the things that I learned from him, Nick, I know you were, were so intrigued with not only the topic of sociology, some of the work that Dr. Curtin has done. Uh, give me your, your takes on, on the interview here, this first part that we're going to play for folks. Yeah. I mean, for, first and foremost, sociology, like, um, you know, behavioral economics, organizational theory, like all these things that talk about how people relate to one another, you know, be it in a work setting or just with people casually. Um, you know, what fascinates me in general about the field is that ultimately is the study of human behavior. Um, what Dr. Kirtan does an amazing job of is 
and this is truly the sign of intelligence um, as it relates to teaching, the ability to take these esoteric concepts and make it attainable that someone at almost any grade level can easily pick it up. So when Dr. Kirtan talks about that sociology is everywhere, you know, there's so many ways to be connected to learning about other people. And I'm not going to give it away, but at some point he talks about one of the easiest ways to pursue a career in that field. And, you know, now that, that right there, folks, is called a teaser, but he gets into it in a way that makes it so attainable. And, you know, for all these books you see on the back of my bookshelf and all these different things I like to nerd out about, um, at, at its core, it's the study of people. And I think he does a phenomenal job of that as a teacher, but also doing so in explaining in a way that just made sense to two people who are not sociologists uh, in you and myself, being able to truly understand the work he's doing uh, and the impact that it, it has on, on us as a society. Yeah. If you are a student, I mentioned this in the interview, but if you're a student at UNC Greensboro, you're blessed to have him as your professor. Enjoy part one when Dr. Stephen Kirtan came on the program. Nick, today's episode of the pod is presented by Stamps.com. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. I know you you use Stamps.com. I do. I do. Look, look, love Stamps, don't love the post office. That's always been my story. I I know, sadly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it is true. I mean, like stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. The other day, I, I remember uh, our old apartment back in Florida, they needed me to mail them something. And I was like, you guys can't do this over uh, Zelle, email, any other <laughs> communication tool that we have. And they were like, no, can you please mail it to us? So I'm like, great. Now I got to go get a stamp. When am I getting the mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right, Nick. That's what the copy here says. It says, tell a story. I'm telling you a story. Listen, folks, whether you're in office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, which I bet you Nick's wife probably has, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer, Nick. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want. And you'll get an exclusive discount on postage and shipping from UPS and the U.S. Postal Service. So once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup, drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com, new rate advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timeline to easily find the best option. Never go to the post office again. All you got to do is just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in POD. That's promo code POD at stamps.com. Never go to that post office again, folks. Like I mentioned, the Dr. Stephen Curtin is a sociology professor at UNC Greensboro. He joins us here on the Can We Please Talk podcast. Dr. Curtin, Mike Leon, Nick Savary, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, Dr. Girton, obviously you were on uh, the sports show uh, that I host over on wow. the analyst. Wow. Are we that's, doing this? That's right. We're, we're, we're doing, doing this. Okay. Always crossover, baby. Free promotion. Flex this guy. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and obviously on that one, we talked a lot about, you know, all the hiring practices going on with the NFL, but I, I invited you over to this pod because I really wanted to get into sociology. I was looking up the okay. definition of sociology the other day from the American sociological association and it said it's the study of social life social change and social causes and consequences of human behavior and i was like i never knew that i never 
knew that. So, but I would love to hear it from somebody who teaches at the collegiate level, somebody who's well-versed in it. Um, what is sociology beyond the definition that I just gave? What is sociology for our audience? Well, it's, if I'm teaching the intro to sociology class, and again, I've been a professor at the University of North Carolina Greensboro for, I guess, 24 years now. Um, but if I'm teaching the intro class, which is mostly freshmen coming in and wanting to know about sociology, I always start with culture, which is we all come from some type of culture, which is our social construction, our way of life, how we do things, how we fold our clothes, uh, what shows we watch, foods we eat, church we go to, music we listen to. So I start there. Sociology is a scientific method of decoding culture, uh, ways of life. Say, for example, one of my um, areas of interest is gangs. And so there's a lot to be said about gangs, but good, bad, otherwise. So one of the things that I did was ethnographic research on the South Central School of Crips. And ethnographic research, which means I actually went to the community to decode their culture, to look at their way of life, not to be judgmental, but to understand differences in gangsterism, differences in being a gang member or a gang banger or being a gang affiliate. So sociology is the study of people, their patterns and behaviors. And so what happens is a sociologist would look to behaviors in the past to forecast probabilities of what might happen in the future. Professor, can you explain your philosophy on teaching? You know, when I looked at the website, I loved um, there was a, the frame you used or the phrase you used was, was life course applicability. So I want yes. to just hear more about that. One of the things that I always tell students is, is don't underestimate your lived experiences. Now, don't let your lived experiences be cliches that are not social scientific. So uh, if a student uh, has been victimized in a way, shape, form, or fashion, you can't tell them how it feels, but you can tell them theories of what, what the other side was doing in terms of a predator, if you will. And so if I'm a criminologist, which is my subfield, when I teach, it's not as if I'm condoning behavior. I just want folks to understand it. So my cultural pedagogy is lived experiences first. Um, allow those lived experiences to speak to you. Then provide facts, data, and theory about those lived experiences. Now, the reason why students gravitate towards that is because it validates what they experience throughout their life. Then it provides perspective above and beyond something immediate, like something that your mother or your father told you or that happened in your household. Now you're looking at it from a sort of social scientific realm of things. So my thing is the immediacy of the student, getting them to understand things that they have gone through, uh, things they have experienced directly or indirectly, things that they are interested, whether it's music and whether it's movies, that's what I mean by that. And hoping that the things that they learn will inform them about better behaviors, things to look out for, say for example, if I'm a criminologist, which I am, I'll talk to them about routine activities theory. And one of the things we know about routine activities theories is that, okay, crimes occur because you have a motivated offender, you have a suitable target, and those two things must converge in time and space. And so what I teach them is don't be a suitable target, which means there are things that we, you have to be able to do to protect yourself. Say, for example, if you go to a cash machine, and people study your behaviors of when you go, because this is what criminals do. I mean, they work hard at studying your behavior. And so don't be a suitable target as in go at a specific time of night. Um, don't be a suitable target if you want to go clubbing. Don't leave when everybody else leaves, like during let out, 2.30 in the morning, something's bound to happen. So I, when I'm teaching these theories, I'm teaching them 
ways of life to better their ways of life. Now, whether they heed to it or not, that's really, really up to them. But they are informed through theory and practice. So that's what I mean by uh, cultural pedagogy through lived experiences. It's safe to say that when thinking about that, you know, from the standpoint of of someone who engages in criminal behavior, that there is sort of an element of sociology there too, because you're studying patterns and behaviors of of people that you live within the community with, potentially um, may engage with, you know, in a criminal way, I guess. But is it sort of that's a sort of a frame that also would apply there too? Yeah, because what what happens is sociology is just this general social scientific field, but then there's subfields within that. Criminology just happens to be one of them. You have uh, feminist criminology because there are those who believe uh, that criminology in and of itself, which is a subfield of sociology, is too male chauvinistic because they believe that crime is a male-dominated phenomenon. And if women who engage in crime, they're trying to be like men, of course, feminists are not going to stand for that. So you have feminist criminology. So it's a subfield of a subfield, if if you will, Um, adopting the same principles, but the focus. So you have sociology of sport, which is how I got uh, um, hooked up with uh, James Hastie and NNJ and dealing with diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, there's sociology of the family. So there's all sorts of subfields that use the sort of the umbrella of sociology. So there's African-American criminology, which is something that I teach that's, that specifically focuses on race from the perspective of black scholars. It looks at the disproportionality, uh, so-called disproportionality of African-Americans incarcerated. So we tackle those kinds of ideas. So I have areas of concentration that I certainly uh, focus on in my research. If you're talking to teachers about applying the idea of life course applicability in, like, say, K to 12 classrooms, what would be some guiding principles that you would, you would ask teachers to consider when they're thinking about curriculum or, or, their, or their own pedagogical practice? Well, that's a tough one because K through 12 is really tough. Uh, it's, it's a lot of state mandates. Right. It's a yeah. lot of teaching to test well. And I know that because my daughter went to a Montessori school as opposed to then she transitioned to a traditional school. And the Montessori school, she was the greatest kid ever. Traditional school, she had to learn how to test tape. So I say all I to say is that I understand that there is a curriculum that they have to address and they have to address the immediacy of testing scores. So they evaluate it differently than, say, a college professor. Can they tackle controversial topics what we've seen over and over again and things like critical race theory which is maybe i mean come on just for the audience critical race theory is theories that are actually taught at the college level that comes out of the legal field it's not something that you come into contact with at the high school level but there's so much uproar in that that folks run one away from that so if i'm talking to a a k-12 teacher um again and there has to be cultural awareness of your students. So if you don't have a cultural awareness that your students is coming from a particular background and you're trying to teach a particular curriculum. So, so let's take, for example, conflict resolution, which is a middle-class sort of standard, how to resolve conflicts. Well, if I have a person who's coming from or who's been busting from a gang-dominated neighborhood and I'm teaching conflict resolution, you're actually teaching that kid to be weak. You're teaching that kid to be verbal and rationalized, whereas where he comes from, it's cold of the street behavior. Right makes right. Respect is about fighting, all those kinds of things. So you're teaching sort of this contradictory program. And what that actually does for the young kid is it puts them in a position of confrontation or predicament where they may reject the educational system in and of itself, not be interested in school, not be interested in the teacher. 
and began to sort of congregate with like circumstance boys or girls, get themselves in school suspension and not pay attention to the curriculum. So it's, it's on the teachers and the teachers are going to kill me when I say this to know their students. And that's the debate that's going on right now. Do they have the freedom to know their students? Because I know a lot of teachers who just want the freedom to teach a particular style to a particular audience, but the system is not necessarily allowing that. Yeah. You know, you touched on a bunch of different things that we're going to talk about. Critical race theory was a topic that we touched on and we had a news correspondent talking about it. And obviously we had Nick's expertise on that. But um, you touched on sort of police reform and in the statistics around blacks and Hispanics and incarcerations. You know, we had I mentioned to you off air a, a while ago, we had Michael Eric Dyson on the program. We talked about yeah. police reform and what that actually looks like from his lens. Right. And it was more about the power, decentralizing the power of police unions, um, obviously uh, giving some authority to people that have uh, psychiatric intervention skills and tools to be able to go on calls when somebody's having a psychotic breakdown. But I turn to you from the sociological um, aspect, like what is missing in police reform from that sociology aspect? Well, let's start with uh, the idea that police do they need to be reformed. And with respect to those officers, and I have family members that are officers and they have a tough job. Uh, We need them. Uh, they are the front line for of civility in many respects. And so I'm a fan. However, with any profession, there is room for improvement. So by police, police reform, and I wrote a chapter on police in the black body in, in one of my books. And one of the things that they have to understand is that when you are a police officer, you are inheriting a culture of policing. And what that means is it may not necessarily have the same appeal across populations of people. So police reform should start with that understanding. I'm not talking about funding and things of that nature. We'll, we'll get to that. But it's, it's imperative that police officers understand the nature of the individual that they're policing. And so in, in one of the things that I offer in, in one of the chapters of my books is reverence for life. Uh, So police reform would start with reverence for life. Now, I know that they are big on going home and being safe. And the majority of the people that they run across are too. So reverence of life should be across every individual until such a time where the decision has to be made to take a life. And I know it's a split second decision and we can quarterback this thing on Monday each and every time. But when you start, and I understand police officers on the front line, and you get very, very jaded, and I'm not comparing myself to police officers, but I was a bodyguard, security for 16 years, and I engaged in racial profiling. I, I, I slid towards a group of people that I thought was a little shady. I thought they might have been the ones that's going to jump off a fight. So for me to sit there and deny that these things don't happen, police reform needs to at least acknowledge that there are some flaws in how we anticipate crime, look at people judge people and think about their predispositions. And unfortunately, when it comes to black and brown people, there is an inferencing of they had, they are predisposed to crime. So we're policing what we think they might do before they actually do it. So police reform needs to start with a difference in definition. Are you policing criminality, which is the predisposition of crime? 
versus are you policing crime? If you're policing crime, your numbers are going to start equaling out. But if you're pro policing criminality, the anticipation what a person might do, then you're going to have disproportionate policing because inherently with our cultural DNA in the United States, black and brown people, minority, even poor, there is just this supposition that they're predisposed, they have a higher criminality to participate in crime, and that's what you're policing. And so you can get this situation where guns are being drawn uh, because that's called a furtive gesture. A furtive gesture from a police officer standpoint is I'm going to assume you're about to harm me. And the only thing that's going to stop that is if I make a move and that move could be deadly. And that inferencing, that furtive gesture comes from my cultural framework about what I believe about minorities, what I believe about them. And I believe them to be predisposed towards crime. So I'm going to make my move before I anticipate that you're going to make a move that you probably never make. So oftentimes what kills me as a sociologist is people will say, well, what did that person do to bring that police officer to a conclusion that deadly force was needed? Black and brown skin is that reason. It's in the idea of how we perceive minorities, that they are predisposed to engage more so than anybody else. Uh, in crime. So reform needs to start with those things. Now, can you do that with cultural sensitivity classes and things of that nature? I, I really don't know if that's the possibility, but diversity of thought, uh, having exposure to people in non-criminal ways certainly can do that. If we talk about reform with respect to the issue of George Floyd operating with impunity, um, if I know that I can make a mistake. And this is what it really boils down to, to, to your audience. If I'm a police officer and I make a mistake and I take a life, I have to say one key word that I feared for my life. And fear for my life means, hey, I am, as a police officer, in most cases, a white male. And I feared for my life with this particular black or brown brother. America is already perceiving us to be more criminal. So part of that we can accept. The second part of that is, is people are saying, well, as long as these folks are getting paid in terms of civil judgments. And I think that folks need to know who actually pays the civil judgments. It's the American public. So we are the ones that are financing these mistakes. And, and, and I think it, it, some study needs to, be, needs to be conducted to my young sociologists out there to see how much taxpaying dollars per person will go towards a civil payment in the cities that they live in? And I think the narrative will begin to change. Like, okay, we, because people are funny about their money and it, it will get to them about if they feel like they are participating in financing mistakes. So some are saying, hey, it's all taxes, but people are funny about their money and they're really concerned about reverence of life, at least in this, this, this generation that's coming up. So police reform would begin with not allowing this impunity to happen, uh, informing the public about where the tax dollars are going in terms of civil judgments, um, and just having more accountability in the courtroom. The more cases that uh, go in favor of victims, the more police officers can legally see that they're held accountable. And civil judgments, it's not that the taxpayers should have to pay it, but I mean, why is a police officer being able to do whatever he or she does and they keep uh, their pensions? So those are kinds of things that I would think of in terms of reform. Now, defund the police. I mean, that has all kinds of 
oh my God, forecasts and cloudiness to it and nobody really understands what it actually means. Are we talking about taking uh, money from police officers uh, as opposed to putting it somewhere else? Another thing in terms of police reform uh, that the public doesn't know about is that every police department in every state has an asset sharing account with the federal government. And what that means is that, because they report to the FBI their statistics, what that means is that profits from crimes, all right, is put into a federal account and the federal government kicks them back a percentage of it. So there are, there are police departments in states all across America, study out there, all 50 states, that they actually build their budget on this asset sharing account. You can go to any police chief and ask them, does your police department have an asset sharing account with the federal government? They're going to say yes. So what that means is there is a policing for profit motive that's out there. That's something that folks do not touch. That's police reform. Stop the whole idea of having an asset sharing account with the federal government where you, the more you turn over to them, the more the kickback you get. And you build that into your budget. In the state of North Carolina, their budget for the asset sharing, their policing for profit is $10 million a year. And that's at the low end. California is up there. It's called an asset sharing account. Anybody can pull it up. I'm, I'm not giving you voodoo stuff that's out there, but we have that. So policing for profit is indeed something that needs reform as well. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why Nick and I started this show is, and I come at it from a television perspective, having worked in news, Nick, from the educational lens, we really try our hardest to be informative and educational, which I appreciate you doing so much of, because I think people lack certain knowledge, even just about that, that asset sharing account. But I want to get back to the beginning. You mentioned something about when we were talking about police reforms and we were talking about the statistics of the communities and the way minorities are perceived. I know you've done some work uh, and some of your research has been around the impact of leadership failures and black flight in black mm -hmm. neighborhoods. Could you share with our audience a little bit about that? Because you mentioned something among black scholars. Uh, I remember uh, uh, Candace Owens, which I hate giving her a little bit more of a platform than she already has, but her and Michael Eric Dyson shared an exchange that went viral one time talking about the role of black fathers in these communities, specifically in the Chicago area. And I know you've done some work around, you know, uh, Chicago and, and the gang violence there. But I would love for you to really talk about uh, what some of your research kind of uncovered. OK, so I, I, let's we'll just talk numbers here. And I know you're 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 a stats guy. So roughly speaking, there are 43 million African-Americans in the United States, um, roughly speaking, those 43 million African-Americans come from 14 million households in the United States. Out of those 14 million households in the United States, 5 million are what you would call the permanent underclass. Mike Greg Dyson, Cornell West, uh, William Julius Wilson talks about the permanent underclass. This is, these are classes of people that are locked into what people call low-income areas generationally. What happens is, is that your Candace Owens and folks like that, they, they take the least, which is the permanent underclass, which has 5 million households, and they exploit those numbers. 
And so when you talk about fatherlessness, you're talking about it more likely to be coming from the family and households that's living in poverty as from a permanent underclass. But working class, middle class, upper class, the presence of Black fathers is absolutely there. So I wanted to clear that up. So when we're talking about the least of things, of course, the least and the most negative is going to get the most attention. So let's address that. that we're talking about those that are coming from the permanent underclass, for those of you who believe in a Chicago perspective, it's called the zone hypothesis. And so we're talking about families that live in a zone two area, uh, two zones away from the city center. They have a cultural distinction. It's integrity, it's where your gangs reside, it's where intact families are, are, are not uh, the norm, it's female-headed households, it's all those things that contribute to crime. But again, it's coming from you know, five million households that's locked into the permanent underclass. And I say to people, because they're into this mass incarceration stuff, that yes, African-Americans are, are, are what, 13% of the general population and they represent about 47% of the prison population. Folks can't get into their heads, oh my God, how is it 13 here and 47 there? And the understanding has to be that there's a population switch. And this actually goes with mass incarceration. So no matter, you can look across the board, the most, we talk about federal, state, local, we have about 2.5 million people incarcerated in the United States, okay? At the juvenile level, we have about 2.3, okay? The black people, let's just say if black people made a 50% of the adult population that's incarcerated, and that's still just a little over a million. So how many black people are not actually incarcerated? Well, you'll have 42 million that's not incarcerated. So we have what, 353 million people in the United States, something like that. Somebody, you can look up the number. And you have about 2.5 million that's incarcerated. Guess how many Americans are not incarcerated? So we have to talk about this idea of mass incarceration. So I say all that to say is that two things can be true at once. There's a disproportionate representation of minorities in the prison system if you want to do percentages. But if you look at raw numbers, the majority of American citizens across the board, no matter what race or ethnicity, are law-abiding citizens. The majority of crimes are interracial. So just as there is black on black crime, there's white on white crime. Black on black crime is 90%. White on white crime is between 84 and 86%. All right. The same thing with Mexican-Americans, the same thing, the same thing with Asians. Crimes are interracial because this is who they are around. But the focus is always going to be on black and brown. And we want to talk about their criminality. So when you think about people who get into those exchanges, one of the things as a sociologist, and I, I don't engage in, in arguments and I don't want to discredit them, but I want to be factual. Let's talk about the population of people that you are talking about and let's not use the least of things to become a generalizable thing about a population of people. Now, did black flight happen? This is the course of things. When people earn better, they do better, they want to get away. And the argument then goes that black flight, which is people moving out of the neighborhood, created this permanent underclass because there was cohesion in the community at once. There was homogeneity in the community. Uh, those who didn't have could see doctors and lawyers going off to work. They had all kinds of buffering systems that's coming from mainstream society. Well, assimilation and integration through the civil rights movement took all that away. And so now that left this community isolated and this community abandoned. And so they created their own thing. And one of those things became either the Black Power Movement or from the Black Power Movement, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, 
And then the bastards of the party, those we know as gang members today. So I want to I would make that distinction that if we want to focus on those who are left behind as a result of black fight, then of course, that is uh, certainly an issue. Now, I will say that we have to acknowledge that black flight is just as destructive as white flight. And with respect to that, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote this a long time ago, the talented 10th needs to take its most talented groups of people who get that education and go back into the communities to educate. And these are things that we haven't done. We haven't done it effectively. We haven't done it consistently. And so the number one agency in these communities, the surrogate fathers, uh, the examples of masculinity, uh, the, the most powerful entities, and that includes the church, is the gang. And so this is why every time you have a shooting, every prayer vigil, every march, everything that you have, if you're not addressing or approaching or trying to bring gang members in, then you're going to fail every time. The history of gangs is simple. They understand civic responsibility. They have been crime and violence gatekeepers. I'm not saying anything to sort of promote gangsterism. I'm just telling you what the facts have been. For example, when Martin Luther King marched through the streets of Chicago and he got to march peacefully, guess who he went to? Vice Lords and disciples to say, guess what? Can, can we have these streets? All right, you're the ones that are going to help us be peaceful. Now, people thought that Martin Luther King was crazy about doing that, but he understood the streets. Um, anytime you want to do a movie and you're going through neighborhoods, you have to negotiate with gangs. All right, so all these things, when we start talking about what's happening in neighborhood and fatherlessness and all those things are, are not apparent. And you have to be specific to the groups of people that you're talking about and not allow people to generalize that this is all black people. Because when you do that, or any minority people, then we get back to the policing. And so now a middle-class black person, upper-class black person, or black person or brown person, it doesn't matter. They're all seen, are seen as the same. Now, I'm not saying that one is better than the other. In my books, I clearly say that because you are better off does not make you better than. I say that over and over again. And I'm very critical of the Black community because I don't focus on white privilege as much as I focus on Black people who are engaged in Black fight. They are exercising Black privilege as well. And by that, I mean, when you start assuming that you're spiritually, culturally better than those you so-called left behind, that's a form of Black privilege. And that's hurting the Black community, too. These are the kinds of arguments that I engage in and I step into because this is the kind of stuff that holds or make us accountable for our own actions and doesn't necessarily lean on anybody else to deal with what we have going on within our community. We have every answer, every book knowledge, every structure, every theory to deal with every problem in the Black community right now. Do we have people who are genuinely concerned about that? Absolutely not. That was part one of Dr. Stephen Curriton. As I mentioned, part two will be coming up in the coming weeks. I'm over here changing diapers of a newborn. Uh, I'm losing my mind over here. Nick, I'm getting no sleep. Uh, but give me a little bit, just a quick, quick little tease of what you thought from part one uh, of Dr. Curriton and all the work that he's doing. Amazing stuff. Folks, I mean, we, again, I'm going to probably get this tattooed on myself at some point. This show is about talking to people who know what they're talking about. And his ability to break down these concepts of sociology, the work that he's doing in his teaching, but also his professional work and what it means in terms of understanding society and particularly as it relates to crimes and, crimina crimes and criminality is, is fascinating stuff. Yeah.
No, that stuff was, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I can listen to that stuff all day. Um, audio podcast platforms, thank you so much for subscribing, following us, social media, IG, TikTok, Twitter, at Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. Leave us a five-star review and comment, please. Thank you so much for listening, watching, everybody. Uh, I am Mike Leon. And relieved that my, my youngest daughter is not a newborn anymore. I'm Nick Saveri. Oh, man, I need some sleep. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one.